Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 21 of Life with GDPR. It's a podcast where, with my good friend and colleague Jonathan Armstrong from the Cordery Firm in London, we take a look at data privacy, data protection, GDPR, and similar related issues. First, as you know, the Compliance Podcast Network is always expanding, and I'm looking for new podcasts. Have you wanted to do a podcast but didn't know how? Take a listen to our sponsor this week, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of Life with GDPR with data protection, data privacy expert Jonathan Armstrong from Quarterly Compliance in London. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks very much, Tom. Jonathan, this is, uh, if not the end, certainly a continuation of a case that you have raised on this podcast before around the uh, company Morrison's. And uh, I think it has the potential to be really scary, frankly. Um, and we finally had a ruling on the uh, the court's uh, question about very vicarious liability, uh, corporate liability for the actions of a rogue employee as opposed to just a regular employee. But I was wondering if maybe we could revisit this. Uh, you could tell uh, our audience once again the background facts of the case, because I think those alone are worth the price of admission in helping people understand uh, the different steps you can do to not only comply with laws like GDPR, but actually are really common sense business practices around data security. And then then what led to, or what is the decision and what was the rationale it was based on? Yeah, happy to, Tom, and I agree. It's a a truly significant case. So um, for those of you who are listening in the US, Morrison's is a supermarket a bit like, I don't know, Safeway or Albertsons or your supermarket of choice. And it's a relatively large corporation, around about 100,000 staff. And uh, it's based in the northeast of England. And they had an audit uh, in train in 2014. And here, I think, is mistake number one, that the auditors asked Morrison's for a file with the personal data of Morrison's employees. The number at the time was 99,998. So just a smidgen under 100,000 employees. Now, what should have happened, I think, to comply with data transfer legislation is probably the auditors to take a random sample of employees. They're effectively trying to check that these employees employees exist and are entitled to salary for the purposes of the audit. So what should have happened, I think, is Morrison should have said to the auditors, okay, pick numbers at random. You know, I want uh, employee 99500. I want employee 14. I want employee 37. I want employee 758. Pick numbers at random and we will let you see the employment records for those uh, employees. Uh, And I think they should have invited the auditors to do that whilst they're on-premise. Obviously, any audit like this has an on-premise element 
and a desk-based research uh, back at the auditor's office. So they should have been invited to scope the audit properly to take that sample whilst they're on premise. For whatever reason, that didn't happen. And instead, the auditors asked for the uh, PeopleSoft type records, the um, employee records, the payment records, to be sent to them. Now, here, I think alarm bell number two should have rung because the file was too big to get it off the Morrison's corporate network. They were trying to attach it to an email, I think, initially, and the file was too big to get off the network. So that should have been warning bell number two in my mind. But instead, they decided to burn that data onto a CD. And they picked an individual in the business, a, a guy called Andrew Skelton, who was a senior IT auditor at Morrison's. Now, here, I think, is warning bell number three. Um, Skelton had previously been subject to some disciplinary action. It was alleged that Skelton was uh, running a drugs racket using Morrison's post room. It turned out it wasn't uh, prescription drugs, but it was, I think, bodybuilding supplements. But he was subject to disciplinary action. Uh, he was uh, brought back into the corporation, but he was still regarded as the trusted individual, if you like, to, uh, to, to, to get hold of this file from the PeopleSoft database and copy it. Now, um, he uh, felt aggrieved at the way in which his previous disciplinary investigation had been handled, and he bore a grudge. And in March 2014, so two months after the auditor's request, a CD, which mirrored the CD that had been given to the auditors, was received by three newspapers. It was sent anonymously. The trail initially pointed to somebody else within Morrison's. The newspapers didn't publish the story, thankfully, for Morrison's. But uh, one of the uh, newspapers told Morrison's, and um, Morrison's called the police. Uh, Skelton was eventually arrested, and he was charged with various offences. And he was convicted, and he was sentenced to eight years in prison, eight years in prison. Now, that wasn't the end of the story because sometime later, 5,000 of the roughly 100,000 employees brought civil proceedings. And obviously, Skelton wasn't an attractive, um, a, a, an attractive target for their litigation because if he serves his full sentence, Skelton will still be what we call in England a guest of the Queen until um, uh, 2023. So Skelton wasn't the uh, object of the litigation. Morrison's were. And the judge decided that Morrison's were not primarily to blame 
So they hadn't breached the UK Data Protection Act 1998. Now, you might question that finding given the warning bells that I've outlined, but that's the decision of the court. But the judge instead ruled that Morrisons were vicariously liable. They were liable for Skelton's actions and they effectively underwrote what he did, even though he was sentenced for criminal offences. So they even underwrote that criminal conduct. And they said because that was because they had subjected, selected Skelton for that uh, trusted position. Now, academically, how you can say that selecting Skelton isn't a failure to take appropriate technical and organizational measures, uh, so uh, it isn't a breach of the Data Protection Act, but does impose contractual liability. From an academic legal point, I'm a bit puzzled by that, but let's skip no. the academic. No, sorry, let's, sorry, let's explore that uh, and geek out a little bit as lawyers. Because <laughs> uh, if you have a liability finding that turns on uh, an intentional act, you can either be directly liable for that as a corporation uh, under uh, whether that's uh, a legislative theory, some sort of um, uh, um, tort theory of uh, uh, product liability, or perhaps some law that's made that assessment, it's, it's uh, excuse me, assignment of liability. But you cannot be vicariously liable if an employee intentionally violates the law. Uh, and uh, so I, I guess from the following on your academic um, puzzlement, I find it uh, dif difficult to understand how if there is no direct liability, whether that be in law, whether that be uh, in statute or other, uh, that there could be vicarious liability when you have an illegal act, uh, an intentional illegal act uh, perpetrated by an employee clearly outside the course and scope of their employment. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, it is, as I say, to, to me, somewhat puzzling, you know, under the we're talking about the old legislation, the Data Protection Act 1998. That's now, of course, been um, been replaced by the 2018 Act and by the GDPR regime. But under the old legislation, a data controller, in this case Morrison's, was under an obligation to take appropriate technical and organizational measures against the unauthorized or unlawful processing of personal data. So I'll just repeat that. They're obliged to take appropriate technical and organizational measures against unauthorized or unlawful processing of personal data. Well, we know that there was unlawful processing of personal data. How do we know that? Because the guy's in jail. So the, then the remaining question is only on primary liability did Morrison's take appropriate technical and organizational measures? And the court decided, it seems, that they did. But nonetheless, they're liable because they put somebody in a position where he could get data who shouldn't have been trusted. So I'm just slightly puzzled as to how 
you win on one ground and not the other. And I guess I have to say from a professional point of view that, of course, nothing in that should be taken as a criticism of any of the judges involved. But I'm just I, I'm just personally puzzled as to how you reach reach that conclusion. And this might well be, we'll talk about this in a minute, this uh, case went to the Court of Appeal. It may now be headed to the Supreme Court and it may be headed to the Supreme Court uh, who, who might have a view on issues like that if they're asked to judge on them. But I think you're right, Tom. It's, uh, it's, it's. Uh, I mean, to cut a long story short, um, uh, the uh, Morrison's employees won at the initial court uh, on vicarious liability alone. So the original judge decided that Morrison's were not primarily responsible, e.g., under Principle Seven of the Data Protection Act but they were liable because they put Skelton in the position to be the trusted guy. Morrison's uh, said that the Data Protection Act excluded uh, vicarious liability in their appeal. And they also said that Skelton's wrongful actions weren't sufficiently connected to his employment to allow for vicarious liability. And they said to outline that argument, that he'd used his own uh, computer at home on a Sunday, uh, and he had a malicious motivation, and that was inconsistent with the finding of vicarious liability. Now, the law on vicarious liability in the UK, again, we oughtn't to geek out on that, but it has been extended somewhat. Ironically, in another case involving Morrison's, where one of their uh, gas station employees punched a customer in the face, and so um, Morrison's legal team at least uh, are more familiar than they perhaps would like to be on the extension of vicarious liability principles, but it does seem to be a um, a, a trend. And, and I've um, been to a very interesting talk by um, uh, one of the barristers, James Seven Bedford Row in the UK, who've looked at that extension of vicarious liability. I'm happy to make introductions to anyone who wants to look at that uh, as, a, as an academic issue, but just take it from me that it seems that vicarious liability is being extended. And the practical effect on that for compliance officers is, of course, that you have to make sure that things like access rights are appropriate. So if you're investigating an employee for wrongdoing, then it might be that as part of the investigation, you have to remove them from places in which they can do the corporation harm or data. So it might be, for example, that if you're investigating, I don't know, somebody in the IT audit team, that temporarily they have to switch teams or their access rights are changed or somebody has to supervise bulk downloads or whatever. Uh, let, me, and, uh, let me stop you there, Jonathan, because let's, let's yeah. play this out a little bit. Because if an employee uh, is engages in an action that uh, leads to discipline up to and including termination um, and uh, or, or perhaps up to but not termination and that discipline is delivered an appropriate level of discipline with all the uh, fair process protections around due process and, and other rights that employee accepts the discipline and continues 
employment with that uh, employer, uh, is the employer entitled to rely on the disciplinary process? And if the employee is then moved or in some way viewed as a risk that they cannot do uh, a job assigned by the company, isn't that really uh, either discrimination or retaliation? Yeah, I think they're very good points. And I think this is where investigations, particularly in Europe, become somewhat complex because obviously you owe a, a, a duty to those who are the subject of the investigation as well as owing a duty to those who could be the victims of those individuals. So in this case, of course, one of Skelton's complaints is that the original investigation into him had been somewhat uh, unfair. So almost certainly, if they had have changed Skelton's role, he almost, one would guess, would have complained about that as well. And in Europe, employees tend to have more rights in this space than they do in the US. So an employee can even bring proceedings if he is dismissed for a valid cause, if the dismissal is not done following the correct procedure. So we've had a case, for example, the BBC have featured, I mean, unrelated, but where somebody posted a photograph of um she was a care home manager, people under her care on social media. Um, even, even though they were right to discipline her, if they follow the wrong procedure in disciplining her, they still pay her damages because they owe a, a duty to conduct the investigation fairly. So I think you're right. There's, there's, there's a very, very narrow line to be drawn in investigations. And it's clear that investigators are going to have to investigate properly and fairly and also be cognizant of the damage that the individual under the investigation can do whilst they still have access to the network and to data on it. Well, I'm not finished with this yet. Yeah. Now let's. Um, but what is risk? Is risk an employee who's been disciplined, uh, which they have accepted, yet they still think is unfair? Is risk an employee who, um, through either no fault of his own or perhaps through um, the fault of his own, uh, is in debt, uh, who's had to take out a payday loan? Is uh, is risk an mm -hmm. employee who um, has recently lost a loved one, a child, or a spouse? Who is who is depressed? Um, I mean, there's there's lots of different risks and there's lots of different situations that could uh, certainly be a red flag for a higher risk. And I suppose the financial um, conditions would be the most obvious. But does that mean uh, what it, what what does it mean if it turns out later that um, under the fraud triangle someone uh, rationalized? or the pressure, rather, of financial conditions cause them to do something. Is that now something that compliance officers, or heaven forbid, even worse, our corporate masters would need to start assessing? Yeah, I, I think that's a great, great question. I, I, I mean, coincidentally, Tom, you, you can read my mind. One, one that I've had to look at today, we have 
somebody that we're looking at in an internal investigation. And uh, I, I just found out today that his, uh, in, in most tragic circumstances, his son had been killed. So do we have to factor that in the investigation? I, I think we do in a, in, in a sensitive manner. But we also have to do that in a proportionate manner because that's our obligations under GDPR. And, and you know, we also have to behave like human beings. This is somebody who's under uh, clearly immense stress and in, in the most tragic of circumstances. So, I mean, I, I suppose I can't say anything other than it is difficult that investigations have to be scoped properly and you are going to have to take all the circumstances into account. And, and obviously, that exercise has to be done even prior to deciding whether there's going to be an investigation at all. So if you've got a whistleblower complaint about individual X or individual Y, I think you have to consider whether that individual should remain in post whilst you're deciding whether they're investigated on or not, or you have to make that decision pretty quickly because there is a risk of further harm, isn't there, if the allegations that are made are true. But equally, we've seen it the other way as well. You know, in, in the UK, uh, where I'm from, we had this horrendous long public inquiry into child sex abuse where a authority had decided that they uh, whenever there was a complaint, they had to remove the child from the parent whilst they investigated the complaint. And of course, very zealous uh, public sector workers in that case were just bringing whatever the number ended up being, 200, you know, sp split 200 children from their parents, sometimes with the most flimsy of evidence. Obviously, in the whistleblower context, I have to bear in mind the fact that that claims can be made maliciously to whistleblower helplines, you know, particularly from certain parts of the world where culturally a uh, whistleblower complaint is an act of vengeance from a disaffected former business partner or somebody who heard a tender pitch in who didn't win, et cetera, et cetera. So some malicious whistleblower claims are certainly on the uptick as well. So the, the regretting news is, I think, Tom, that it's, it's something that everyone's going to have to do a very careful assessment. There are no hard and fast rules, but they are going to have to balance the rights of potential victims against the rights of the individuals under suspicion. So now that I've uh, sidetracked us into areas that <laughs> are no answers to whatsoever, um, where, where does Morrison stand now and what potential liability are they looking at? Well, Morrisons, uh, I think, are trying to appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, uh, we'll see whether they can get there. Um, they've appealed from the Court of Appeal. They, um, if the judgment stands, then there will be an uh, assessment for quantum. So currently, uh, the, the initial decisions have looked at um, potential liability, but haven't looked at how much uh, each person gets. And of course, it could be the case that this 5,000, this 5% uh, of the employee population increases now that uh, 
um, those initial claimants have had some success. So um, for Morrisons, it looks like, uh, subject to any appeal they might make, that they're going to end up paying uh, compensation to the employees, some of which, of course, are still with the business for this loss. And that's obviously upsetting uh, to Morrisons. Um, there's also a lot of debate uh, in both uh, court judgments on the availability of insurance, where effectively the court seemed to be saying that either Morrisons is covered by insurance for this, so they're at no direct loss, or they should have been. Now, whether that's an oversimplification of the cyber insurance market is for others to determine. I um, I have my doubts as to whether if we're going to have concepts of vicarious liability, that's obviously going to have an impact on premiums and availability of cyber insurance. And people in some sectors, retail, for example, struggle to get cyber insurance as it is. So there's still a lot of questions to be answered, I think. And, and the next step will either be an appeal or a hearing on quantum, and we'll be in a bit better place to know the full effects after either of those two events. Well, Jonathan, this has been a fascinating exploration of a case that uh, now that you've really fully explained the details, I find even more, uh, if not problematic, certainly concerning for uh, corporate America, corporate UK, and, and perhaps corporations literally across the globe with the blurring of uh, direct and vicarious liability. I would look forward to seeing what the uh, United Kingdom Supreme Court might have to say. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Life with GDPR. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jonathan at jonathanarmstrong.com at Quarterly Compliance. I have a special announcement. Navex Global needs your expertise on ethics and compliance programs, and you're involved in the managing employee policies and procedures, hotline incident management, or training initiatives. Navex Global would like to hear from you for their 2019 Future of Compliance survey. I'm going to link to the survey in the show notes. I hope you will complete the survey. For every survey completed, they will make a donation to one of several charities. This is Tom Fox. Life with GDPR is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.